I wish you could live in my brain for a day to really get how useless I am at almost everything except for things that I found fun and just did those things over and over and then yeah. built people around me to make up for my for my failings, for my flaws, for my laziness and really just like made a thing work in spite of those, you know, silos of lack. And I still have a ton of fun. You know, I've gotten tens of billions of readers, I've made multiple seven figures in revenue, and the whole thing has just been like an eight-year playtime experiment, and I'm still flying by the seat of my pants. And I deeply believe that if I could figure that out, and I'm still, you know, happily ignorant about most of the moving parts of my business, anyone can make a thing work. That's Jordan Gray, my very special guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're not familiar with Jordan, he's a relationship coach, writer, and online course creator. Over the past eight years, he's built a very successful online business that's reached over 80 million readers, generated multiple seven figures in revenue, and transformed the lives of 10,000 plus students. I'm really excited to share our conversation with you today for one reason in particular. You see, most of the time when Jordan appears on a podcast, he's there to talk about dating, relationships, and intimacy. This makes sense since he's an expert in these areas, but almost no one takes the time to ask him about his business. And that's what today's episode is all about. You'll learn about Jordan and hear the story of how he built his business from the ground up. I'm grateful for everything that Jordan shares and sincerely hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 159 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited to be here. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're just going to do the quick obligatory fast introduction to you just so people kind of get a level set. So if you don't mind telling us uh, what your background, give us kind of 30,000th of view of uh, what you do. Sure. So I've been a sex and relationship coach for the last 11 years. I moved online just under eight years ago. And I write and I make video courses and I coach people one-on-one. And yeah, now my business is entirely online. Awesome. And I think you have a really fascinating story of how you started and grew your business. So could you share a little bit about that journey? Sure. Yeah. So 11 years ago, I started you know, purely offline, face-to-face in one-on-one and small group coaching in my hometown of Vancouver, Canada. And what we were doing grew quite quickly. And I felt like I kind of became the market leader within the first year, year and a half. And, you know, that was fun. And my ego liked it for a couple of years, feeling like, oh, I'm like winning. But then being at that market ceiling or close to it, like, you know, the exponential returns were not really there. And I thought, what if I changed my market from, you know, men and women in Vancouver, Canada alone to effectively the English speaking world Mm -hmm. and moved online, even though yeah, at that point, I very did not consider myself, you know, tech literate. And it's a bit of a point of pride. I still do not consider myself that like, I'm definitely the talent in my business. And I outsource all the, you know, tech and design and web stuff. And yeah, despite the things that I've consciously stayed ignorant of, you know, in the styles of my business that just don't feel fun for me, it has done really well. We're doing seven figures a year. And yeah, I feel like I have more scale and impact on fewer hours or definitely fewer stressful hours per month. And yeah, the whole thing just feels like a a fun puzzle at this point. Did your offering transfer pretty easily from what you were doing in person to online or did you need to kind of reimagine it? It did transfer quite easily, but it wasn't necessarily immediately apparent to me. Like, Right. You know, if I had more counsel or coaching outside of myself, if you know, someone who wasn't as close to the business said, Oh, just do this, it would have been very clear. But I chose to go through it, you know, painstakingly one step at a time, quite like lone wolfing it in my process. So ultimately, yeah, it did transfer really easily. And every book or video course or, you know, digital product I've ever put out really was just a result of me listening to my audience and this 80th person asked the same question and I was starting to get annoyed with the question. It's repetitiveness. I was like, 
oh, I can never answer this again by creating a product. Yeah. I get how a business works. Yeah. So, yes. We say that tongue in cheek, but it's how it works because it's, it's so important to listen to the audience and what they want. And it's definitely in our benefit to provide resources that people can get at any time and anywhere but it's also to their benefit because if we're restricting ourselves to only being available on a one-on-one basis in real time, there's a very small and select group of people that's going to be able to work with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very limited. And I also ran into that quite quickly because the first you know, three or four years of my business were much more like revenue wise. It was much more predicated on one-to-one coaching. My emotional bandwidth, I kind of capped out at 15, 20 hours a week of Skype-based coaching. I don't know if Zoom was around at that point. I don't think it was. Yeah, so like the only thing I could do was continue to price my rates higher and higher. But at a certain point, it felt like, okay, am I just going to price out 98% of the people that would want to work with me? Because at that point, my readership had really grown. You know, I was doing somewhere between quarter million to half a million unique readers a month on my website just from organic like search traffic. And so even if you know 0.001% of people want to work with me, that was still an overwhelming amount of people if my pricing was, you know, a hundred or two hundred dollars. And yeah, for me it felt less and less good to just like price people out and not make myself as available and not only rob, you know, more people of being impacted by my work, but also becoming an increasingly burnt out and jaded provider that served all of my even most favorite clients, you know, with less and less of my true self showing up. You know, people who done any kind of one-on-one coaching will definitely get this because there's the informational part of the session, but there's also the spoken and the unspoken processing that goes along with it. You know, one-on-one coaching is great. I love it. Providing it's great. Receiving it's great. But sometimes there can end up a situation where it's easier for the person on the other end not to do the work sometimes. Mm. If you sit with information and material yourself, it's easy for you not to do the work in that case too. But at the very least, if you end up doing the work, it's because you've chosen to go into it yourself. You're not asking somebody else to do the thinking for you. You know, you just let it sit and ruminate for a little bit. And then, you know, but if you're in one-on-one, usually you end up kind of lifting some of that. Yeah, 100%. I think that it can absolutely be you know, somewhat enabling to train all of our customers and clients to think that, okay, you know, this person's just always going to handhold me through my process, so I can kind of phone it in because they will be taking some of that you right. know, weight off my shoulders. <laughs> and you know, it's hard for me to not translate this into the relationship realm I would see that as the exact same equivalent of, you know, if there's someone who's in an intimate relationship and their partner is the only person who's bringing them some difficult to sit with truth Mm -hmm. and not their friends and extended community, like it's, it's just coming from this one thing, it's easier to, you know, either codependently want them to do some of that work for you or to dismiss it and go like, well, like only this person's saying it and like, yeah, they're close to me, but you know, what's one person versus if your entire community you know, in a group coaching program or if someone's in a Facebook group or in a membership site where there's, you know, a bunch of comments and you see people like, oh, we're all moving towards this together and right. you can benefit from seeing someone else's process. Exactly. Like yeah. it's infinitely more valuable to not just be hearing from one person's voice, but to have that one to many offering like for the provider and for the receiver. Yeah. It's interesting that jump you made to use relationship in your work as an example to explain something. It kind of ties back to something we were talking about before we got on this call. We were talking about tea. People who listen to this podcast know that I'm into tea. But we had both visited this same tea shop in Vancouver, BC. And you said, it's amazing. I I had no idea that the world was so deep. It's a whole new world. And I was like, yeah, like just like that with anything, right? And I was about to say something, but I was like, we need to start recording because otherwise we're just going to have this whole conversation (laughs) offline. (laughs) But the thought that I had was, I think it's valuable for each of us to find something in our life that we can go deep with, whether it's tea, whether it's relationship, studying relationship, because ultimately I feel 
when you go deep with something, there's kind of the surface level stuff that's different across everything. But once you get beyond the surface, everything kind of has a truth that you know matches across the board. So you may use relationship to talk about something. I may use tea as metaphor to talk about something because at a certain depth, there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I once had a client who I worked with for a few months who his multi-decade career was, he was a mining like ventilation specialist. So where there were places that mining had to be done deep in the earth, he would make sure you know, oxygen was being pumped down. And I was like, wow, yeah, I guess that's a job. And he would pull analogies from that and apply it to the work we were doing. He's like, oh, that's like this part of my job. I'm like, okay, I would never think to potentially extrapolate that, but like, amazing. We all have, yeah, that deep context on something. It does give you the awareness of themes or tools for other people's deep work. And there's a whole new opportunity there for a, relationship product specifically targeted about deep earth ventilation specialists. <laughs> Do you work three miles <laughs> beneath your surface and it's hard to meet people? Well, have I got a very specific sales page for you? That's awesome. So we touched a little bit on how you're getting quarter million, half a million page hits on your site. Now, I'm guessing that didn't happen overnight. Right. No, that was yeah. Several years of writing, several deep dive blog posts every week, tons of marketing. Yeah. So, yeah, and this is something that is noticeable when going to your website. That there's a ton of high quality, in depth blog posts. In fact, it seems you have an organic reach and get tons of focused traffic each month. And um, when we spoke earlier, something I found surprising is that you don't consider yourself a natural writer. As in, this wasn't a skill that you had specifically developed prior to starting your business. So can you share a little bit about how you used writing to grow your website and business and your approach to mastering that? Sure. Yeah. From day one for me, I really just sat down with my journal and was like, okay, if I'm going to build a business that is just my own and leverages the internet, starting with the end in mind, what do I actually find fun? And I thought, well... I like coaching people one-on-one, and I like writing. I didn't think I was a good writer. I still don't necessarily think I'm a good writer, but I do think I'm a useful writer. And I thought, okay, as long as I'm just like putting out things that I either you know, intuitively can assume will be valuable or based on the you know, facial reactions of my one-on-one clients, know is valuable and useful, I'll just channel like, the library of thoughts in my brain or on the subject into useful content regardless of the number of typos or you know how many really detailed punctuation things I'm missing. like It just didn't matter to me. I was like, I'll just help people. If I help people, we'll see what momentum accrues with time. And yeah, that was really it. I've You probably weren't thinking about SEO or anything like that. No, not in the slightest. You know, I also started this phase of my business, the online part, when I was 24. So I had some kind of youthful arrogance <laughs> running through me of just like, whatever, yeah. I'll just like make a thing and people will find it. It's arrogance combined with ignorance, which I also had when I started my business. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is very helpful at that stage. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't read the book, but I'd read the book title, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And I was like, I'll just be good. I'll put out useful stuff and my articles will spread if they're meant to. Right. And so... It wasn't super surprising when, you know, six months in, eight months in, much larger websites started to see my articles, ask, hey, can we repost this on our site? And I was like, sure. You know, not even knowing that that was a business strategy. And yeah, things just grew from there. And all the major links that I've gotten from, you know, New York Times, BBC, Huffington Post, Vogue, Women's Health, etc. None of them were ever asked for or pitched. Mm-hmm. I don't have a content outreach person. I just like stayed in my corner and made things. And then websites asked if they could use them. Nice. So six to eight months and consistent, right? Yes. So you were doing one a week, two a month? At least one a week. I mean, especially in the first two years. Yeah, I don't have like a spreadsheet of it, but I'm guessing I was probably averaging like at least three a week for the first year. And then 
as I started to get more attention, more clients, then it was just a constant, you know, bouncing out between, okay, delivering service to people that want to pay me one-on-one and also still trying to carve out as much time to keep writing articles to grow the readership. Okay. I have a relationship analogy that, that proves that. Okay. So if you like the barista girl or, or boy that works at Starbucks, mm-hmm. the best way to potentially get in a relationship with them is not to go into that Starbucks once, but to go in consistently and spend time there so that you get on the radar. <laughs> and then ultimately, maybe something will come of that. Like, don't try and like be like, I'm going to go there once and I'm going to go say something to them very like, hey, do you want to go on a date right now? Like the first time you ever meet, you know? Yeah, or, or propose. The right, first time or you propose, meet yeah. You want to get in their field. You want to just spend some time there, feel the vibe. But ultimately, an important ingredient is that consistency, being a part of the, a part of the room. Absolutely, yeah. Building rapport, building trust over time, and yeah, someone like I've had so many long-term readers who, you know, when they reach out or when they sign up or when they, you know, whether it's a coaching session or a video course, they sign up for like, I've been reading your stuff since you know 2013, and like I'll take their email address, put it into the search tool to see if they've been emailing me you know, ever before, and they haven't. So people are just like quietly watching for years before they cross the threshold and engage in some deeper way, but they are watching the whole time. I think that applies in every industry. Let's talk about when you were growing your business. Were you using email and how did you use it? I wasn't from the get-go, but yeah, uh, close to a year in, one of my mistakes, I did not have an email list at all on my site. Until, yeah, I think at least 10 months, 12 months in. And then a colleague was like, hey, have you ever thought about this? And I was like, I have not. I will do that today. <laughs> uh, so I did yeah. an email list eventually. Yeah. And yeah, it's never been a huge focus for me. I, I do have a, a decent sized list that's just accumulated now. And yeah, I, I was emailing because I was writing so much. It never felt good to me to mail out each time I put out a new article, because just for me, for my own temperament, like sending out a dedicated email blast four days a week to announce each new thing felt annoying. And so more often than not, I would write, you know, one, two, three, four posts within a week, and then just mail out all the new stuff on Sunday and go, here's some new things. Yeah. I like that approach. That's what I, I have a personal website where I just keep track of the things that I do. I do it once a month. Yeah. And I use that kind of language too. I'm like, so this is stuff that happened. Here's this that happened. These things happened as well. I Ooh. hope you're doing well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, that just feels, you know, it's like a, an honest catch up with a pen pal or a close friend. You're just like, oh, here's what's in my life versus like bombarding them with like the strategic daily right. emails. I'm just like, eh. yeah. Are you someone who works too. three miles deep in the earth and. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a blog post specifically for you. (laughs) Now, from a monetization standpoint, so it sounds like for the first number of years, you were just putting out, putting out, putting out, and probably just keeping supporting yourself, maybe doing one-on-one coaching and stuff like that. Yeah. So at what point did you start monetizing online and what form did it take? I released a few PDF eBooks and I made V1 of three video courses that I now cringe to think of their existence and like how, how V1 they were. But yeah, I had video courses, three video courses and three books. Those are my first digital products. And I also started to use Amazon associates just to, you know, I recommended certain books and supplements and sex toys often enough that I was like, Oh, I guess I could get, 5% 5% right. off of those clicks. Sure, yeah. why not? Sure, why not? So are those are those V1 products still part of your... The books are all still up. Those three courses have been down from hopefully the entire internet forever, but definitely <laughs> off my site. Uh, I'm sure someone downloaded them and put them on Torrent site at some point. And one of the three video courses that was drastically my bestseller, I just redid and made infinitely better. And that's still on my site. So same name, but redo. Nice. You should re-release the old ones on VHS. <laughs> right? Yeah, Betamax. 
That's awesome. So aside from writing, what were some other major skills that you had to learn during your journey as you were getting your business started? I think all of it. Even in needing to have you know, barely functional relationships to the tech aspects, like you know, functional enough so that I knew what to ask for from my tech guy. There's just there's been so many, you know, Googles and YouTube searches of like how to integrate this piece and what is this all about? And yeah, hiring and management and culture and you know how to hire, how to fire, how to invest money that you're sitting on. Like just, you know, there's been an infinite direction and volume of things that have had to be learned over the years. So for you is a lot of like navigating the kind of where does tech fit in? When do I need to engage with technology? How do I work with it? That kind of thing. Yeah, that and I would say also finding ways to kind of reclaim the human element. Because for me, there's just like this constant dance of, okay, when I use X type of technology or X volume of technology, then you know, size and scope and scale happen. And these things are great because impact happens. And if it's just, you know, really big numbers, but the feedback loops have stopped. And so I'm not interacting with people as much, then it feels too stale and robotic and lifeless. And so then swing the pendulum and do, okay, more feedback loops, more interactions with people. So I can actually, you know, see the results, the benefits in people's lives again. But then that becoming overwhelming when, okay, well now, 800 people a week are emailing me looking for free advice because I've made myself too available. Right. Like that's also been its own dance of how do I keep my finger on the pulse of my audience and you know having real-time interactions with people without drowning in it and using technology to scale while still keeping it human feeling. I think most of us, as long as we recognize that there's importance that we need to keep our finger on that feedback loop like we talked about in the beginning, really... If you're not listening to your audience, you're missing out on products and things that you can be creative for them. That's definitely number one. You know, they'll tell you where they want your business, your offering to them to go. So that one's, I feel a little straightforward, but the one that I, I personally would struggle with is, okay, you do that and then you get all the people asking for the things. Now, how do you, how do you back off? What, what techniques have you used to do that? I mean, it depends how and where and what volume it's coming in at. If I've introduced a feedback loop that is just bringing in way too much input, then I'll just, I'll kill that feedback loop. I'll, I'll, I'll strangle off the place where I said, okay, this is available. And it's like, oh, that is way more than I have, you know, bargained for. Never mind. And I'll either, you know, make it harder to find or if it was the second email in the email autoresponder sequence, I'll make it the 13th email, you know, just so that someone's already proven themselves to, you know, be sticking around and still getting results. Yeah. So a lot of it's like, you know, timing mm-hmm. or placement. Um, yeah. And this hasn't happened in a long time, but in the instance that I put out an offering, you know, one to one or one to many offering that is more tied to my time. If it is overwhelming and too much, then I can also just, you know, I can rescind that offer. It doesn't have, because you say, here's a product offer once, doesn't mean that it just now lives in your site forever. You can, you know, rescind features, you can rescind products. So yeah, the whole thing is just so dynamic. Plus, I have a better sense of what types of things to put out because, you know, there's been enough miniature or larger moments of being burned and say, okay, I know that this style of thing doesn't seem to work or this timing of a thing doesn't seem to work. So the missteps are thus far, I mean, knock on wood, are increasingly small. I'm not, I'm not having as big deviations because I know what the ideal range is for me at this stage. What are some of your favorite techniques or tools for creating a feedback loop? Yeah, having... An autoresponder sequence, depending on which funnel it is. If I put the second email or tenth email as you know subject line, product name, hey, how's it going, and then just a three or four sentence, hey, it's been X number of days since you signed up for this product. I'm wondering what your biggest takeaways have been so far. What have you implemented? And if there's anything that you would want to see differently 
you know, I'm always adding bonuses and redoing things. So let me know if there's any changes you'd love to see. I'm always open to feedback. If that's getting, you know, 10% of people that open that reply, depending on what volume I'm doing in that funnel, great. I love knowing, okay, this is landing. You know, this is the fourth person to say that this feature is kind of confusing. Something has to shift here. And I, you know, can put this as like the fifth to do on my list just to make sure that it does get done at all. Outside of that, yeah, polling my most engaged users by emailing them directly, or I still do some one-on-one coaching. At the end of a session, if we have done an hour, we're now in like overtime, I might say, hey, quick question. I'm thinking about adding this kind of a thing. Does this sound valuable? Does this sound, you know, useless? Like just how does that land for you? So the people that have gone the furthest down my funnel and, you know, are not like the, the super diehard fans necessarily, but just someone who's like a casual user who's happened to buy a couple of my front end products. You know, I'm very curious to hear their opinion versus someone that bought their first thing from me ever six hours ago and they're brand new. You know, yes, at certain points of your business, feedback and you know user data can be as valuable if not more valuable than revenue at a certain stage you also have to qualify okay how informed is this feedback versus others you know whose advice am i adding that much weight to exactly a really good point do you use uh, social media at all in your business and if so what role does it play for you i did a lot in my first two years because that was just my plan. I was like, okay, I don't have any momentum. And, you know, Facebook has people. I'll post every single thing that I do and just like spam the heck out of my you know, Facebook wall to pull eyeballs over here. And, you know, organic reach, especially on Facebook and Twitter, was quite different eight years ago or seven years ago versus today. But, right. you know, even then, there's always whatever, TikTok or LinkedIn or whatever is the next hot thing that you can pull eyeballs from. So yeah, early days, for sure. I used it a lot. Now, I do some advertising on Facebook. So that's you know technically on a social media platform. But in terms of like organic posting, I use social media very little. I really like the audience, the community that I've built around my website and my email list. And so I'm mainly engaging with those things. And again, they're like the earned attention or earned feedback loop thing, I generally don't care as much about what some passerby shocked scroller who isn't connected <laughs> to me on social media, like they see a post right. and they're seeing, you know, one of my 600 plus articles, they hate the headline and, you know, write this, use some vitriol that they think is really important. And like, I don't need to take this as seriously as someone who's been on my list for three years, exactly, you know? Like, yeah. And so, yeah, I just, uh, I increasingly don't interact with social media much at all. It's like the difference between how you would take feedback from a friend who's been your friend for like 10 years and some rando who passes you on the street and doesn't like the color of your t-shirt. A hundred percent. And it's having a bad day or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If one of your best friends who's known you for a decade is like, you've been kind of a jerk lately. It's like, you should listen to that. Like yeah. that's, that's a quality, <laughs> a quality source. Yeah, exactly. Something I found that I've kind of said or thought about often is in relation to my business, that business is like a relationship. Like starting a company is like, I think I've most frequently said it's kind of like having a child, but I've, I've never actually had a child. So I could be completely wrong. In some form, it's basically like saying you're starting a relationship. It's not just like, it's not a set it and a forget it situation. It has all the hallmarks of relationship. And I was just wondering if you've felt something similar in your span of time that you've been with your business. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. I've always thought about it like a marriage and, you know, how committed are you to the thing? Because your audience, your customers, your clients can feel that if you are showing up with consistency, of course, you're going to get very different results than if you, you know, just like love bomb your business with a lot of energy for a 50 hour period, you know, once a month or once every quarter, like you're going to get a very different outcome just as you would with your intimate partner. If you are doing small things often, if you are showing up and pouring love into the thing, the relationship, the business, like 
it's going to magnify back whatever you're giving it in proportion to what you're pouring into it in the first place. So 100%. And I would also extrapolate that into, you know, people joke about the seven-year itch, which studies actually show is a four-year itch, not a seven-year itch. Uh-huh. Uh, that dip is much more closely correlated with the four-year mark in a long-term committed interrelationship. And like, I absolutely noticed that, that, you know, I was fueled by a ton of things in my first couple of years. It only carried me so far. And around the four-year mark, I started to hit that wall of, is this really like the highest and best expression of my gifts in the world? Do I care about this? Have I been fooling myself the whole time? Is there someone else for me? Like, it's just all that same internal dialogue of like, you know, the shiny object syndrome and, you know, having to take those, you know, shiny hits of inspiration from other things and pour it back into your primary thing and finding ways to overcome the monotony and the boredom and the repetitiveness. Like, I think that both in, you know, long form business ownership and in intimate relationships, these things are not talked about enough that, of course, you're not going to feel the biggest crazy burning desire like you did in the first three months for decades. How unsustainable would that be for that thing and for your life in general? Like nothing would get done. You'd struggle to feed yourself or sleep if you were just (laughs) in that like early infatuation phase forever. And so finding and pulling inspiration energy from other things and funneling it back into your main thing is absolutely relevant. Cause yeah, I definitely experienced those times in my business where it's like, I need to, you know, I need to get out of this because this is, it's just too much, you know, vacation helps or taking a step away, et cetera. It didn't end up happening with me because I'm still in my business, but there are legitimate situations where actually it is not right for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do we discern in business? Like if we come to a point where we think, okay, is this of my highest purpose, et cetera, et cetera. How do we distinguish between the shiny object syndrome and the true, okay, you know, this actually isn't for you? Yeah, I would 100% give the same advice to, you know, passion in a business and passion in a relationship. You know, if you're several years deep, there is, you know, commitment and momentum and energy around the thing then, yeah, if you notice yourself starting to check out or feeling kind of disillusioned or less passionate about it, then A, you shouldn't just immediately go, well, you know, I felt some dissonance today, so (laughs) I am done. Sorry about the wake of destruction behind me. Um, Here's the ring. Yeah, (laughs) you somewhat have to, you know, earn your way out. And I think for me, step one of that would look like you know, really reconnecting to my deepest core values and go, okay, what is my life about? Why do I really care about? Because in a relationship, in a business, sometimes that's as simple as, you know what? It isn't really about the thing that I'm doing or the person I'm dating as much as are these core values being expressed? Because maybe I've just veered off path and I haven't been utilizing or living those values in the way that I've been interacting with this. Maybe I'm in my business or in my relationship but, you know, the, the tasks or the kinds of dates or the way we spend time together, et cetera, is just, you know, it has deviated. It's gone off the flight path. And so the pivot isn't that big. Maybe it's, okay, you know what? I've been slipping into doing, you know, customer support or right. this thing, and that is not my zone of genius. And I just need to course correct and get back in my lane because that's when I'm the happiest. And second layer to that would be, yeah, I mean, the you know paraphrasing the Steve Jobs concept of if you wake up and look in the mirror every morning and you ask, is this still what I want to be doing? And the answer is no, you know, for quite some time. Again, it's not one day, nor is it 25 years. If it's been, you know, six months, nine months of like, you know what, I've been trying, I've been trying to, you know, get these needs met in other ways, you know, not just with my partner, but with my friends and mentors and men's group, et cetera, women's group, can I find a way to get this itch scratched elsewhere? And if not, and this just really is a misaligned thing, then okay, I can face that, own it, and 
have the mature adult conversations of dissolving this thing and moving into something that's more aligned. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, you know, as you were kind of sharing your perspective on that, kind of going back to this thing we scratched the surface on earlier about how when you go deep with one thing, you ultimately arrive at some truths. And I think the thing that we go deep with has something to do with natural disposition. I just found myself wondering and thinking about how you're describing these things because I resonate a lot with what you're saying. I'm like, yes, all this makes sense. This comes from my experience too. And yet I didn't arrive at it the same way that you did in the same path. It begs the question for me, like, how do you see the world? You know, especially like before you got into saying, I'm a relationship coach, like, did you just find that you were seeing breaking things down in a particular way that was unique? In order to come to which outcomes? When you were walking through the world, before you necessarily had a direction about where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do, what was life like? Like, what were the things that stood out for you? Did you just like naturally like get a spidey sense when you would like see two or three people like talking to each other? Would it just make sense to you? And then at some point you realized, oh, not everybody sees it this way. Yeah, I feel like it was a bit of nature and nurture that I think that inherently I definitely have a more sensitive, empathic, introverted brain. And I just am very sensitive to my environment in general. And, you know, somewhat the nurture, the environmental conditioning was, yeah, I didn't feel entirely safe in my childhood. And so that made me even more aware of, okay, you know, be hyper plugged into relational dynamics. You know, when is there enough tension that there might be a fight erupting? How do you keep the peace and harmony with people around you? Like, that was just something that was cultivated through how I was relating to my childhood. Yeah. Let's talk about emotional sensitivity because I've actually found this has been extremely valuable in business. You know, it's like, you know, you talk about these points that we can reach where things just so much destruction happens because so much pressure has been building up over a period of time which is a result of lack of sensitivity to one's needs. So what are some ways that people can kind of start a practice of tuning in to these emotional sensitivities and, and as a result of that, help guide them on the right path and what they're working on? Yeah, I'd say there's two levels of that. I think one level to cultivate is the emotional sensitivity with your customers, clients, the people you serve. And the second layer is emotional sensitivity to yourself, to your own needs as the technician or operator or CEO of the thing that you were helping manage. On the customer level, I think that, yeah, intentionally creating space for those conversations and keeping your finger on the pulse, you know, whether it's one-to-one conversations or you have a you know client success director or someone who aggregates the keeping the finger on the pulse for you. And so, okay, here's what the tone of the conversation has been lately around what is wanted or what might soon be wanted in the forecasts. And yeah, for yourself individually, if you don't have some observing ego practice of self-reflective journaling or meditation, if that word doesn't turn you off too much, or, you know, if you're a bit more type A, hard driving, which I'm sure there are zero of in the entrepreneurial world. (laughs) Um, I think that sometimes kind of chaining yourself to the rocks and if you're not super prone to resting, then, you know, potentially making yourself sign up for a 10 day Vipassana retreat or take a three day, you know, really that would be your first recommendation to a type A person. Not the first recommendation. <laughs> I mean, it depends how much of a masochist they are. They really just want to like, well, actually, a type through. A person may be like, yes, I am going to do this meditation thing. Yeah. There's no <laughs> way I'm going to flake out. I will be there until the very last second. Uh, I'm going to crush it. They'll be sitting there meditating and judging everyone who leaves <laughs> winning. Yeah. I mean, for, for anyone who has literally Googled the search term, how do I rest? Like, for those people, I would say, forcing in like just making non-negotiable retreat again that doesn't have to be a vipassana at all it could just be two nights three days where you go to a hotel in your city or in a you know nearby more naturey 
suburb where you just book yourself in for two nights, you do not bring screens, you don't bring a stack of self-help books, and you just get to go be with yourself. You know, maybe you do some journaling or you do some stuff that mines information out of you, but you're looking to reduce inputs and just check in and go like, okay, am I still happy? Is this still fun? What do I need to bring into my life so that I'm more supported, more in my center, more in my power, etc.? And without that, yeah, I think at least weekends or quarterly solo retreat, I think that a lot of you know CEOs or showrunners will struggle to not deviate a lot further than they need to if they were just checking in with themselves at all in that kind of conscious, intentional way. Yeah, I think something that stuck out to me about that is the reducing of inputs. Actually, two things came to mind when you were talking about that. You were saying talking about keeping the finger on the pulse. I've actually taken a pulse reading course. I learned that there's actually seven levels of pulse that you can feel. It just depends on, first of all, obviously your fingers need to be sensitive enough to feel this in practice, but there's different levels of the pulse. And I think, you know, relating to what we're talking about is like, if you're constantly just feeling the surface level pulse, you're missing all the six other levels of things that are going on. And the reduction of inputs, the reduction of input, which is really about, you know, keeping the mind busy, active, is what's keeping us from tuning into those deeper levels, which also have things to say. And in my experience, the economies of scale, like in younger years, when I was more type A, you know, starting my business, having that arrogance and the ignorance and all this stuff, like you know, the vision, pushing through things, 60 hour, 80 hour weeks, you know, all this stuff, and not listening to those things. It didn't really sink in for me. You know, it didn't really make much sense that there was a value there. But now I realized that I was doing a lot more work than I needed to do because a lot of the work that I was doing was really just about staying busy, staying active, like feeding that desire, the habit of being in a certain state. Totally. Yeah. There's two books that come to mind on this subject. One is Essentialism and the other is The Paradox of Success. You know, the ears have really lit up over the last five minutes of this conversation. Those two books relate to this a lot. Perfect. Another thing that you casually mentioned in an earlier conversation is that you feel as though it's, it's no longer necessary to be a quote-unquote starving artist. What did you mean by this? And I'd love to explore this a bit with you because I know a lot of people who have this, they put this on themselves, like this starving artist syndrome. Yeah, I definitely think at least the least necessary it has ever been. You know, I'm sure that if there are some people who have such hyper niched work that is just very for them and they're not looking to make a commercial go or, you know, make their primary income off of that thing. Fine, amazing, all the power to those people. It is just, it has absolutely never been more available. Like the ease with which a person who just has passion or care or interest around a subject, for them to create a lean seven-figure business or mid-six-figure business around that thing over a course of a number of years has just never been easier. And we're extremely spoiled. It's easy mm-hmm. to lose perspective on that fact that you know decades ago was just an extremely different climate for entrepreneurship and the risk that was inherent a couple of decades ago for our parents' generations and beyond, it just it's completely incomparable. And yeah, when I meet people who just are not self-aware enough or taking enough responsibility for their energy allocation of how they're showing up, what tasks they're allowing themselves to do in their business, and they're blaming the market or technology or the tools on why their business isn't going well, you know, blaming in general is generally a sign of projection, lack of taking responsibility, projection, exactly. So yeah, I just don't have a ton of patience for that mindset of like, oh, it's like, it's really hard. And it's, you know, there's so much risk and oh, how can you do this? It's like the tools have never been more accessible. The risk has never been lower. That's a thing though. Like it's a mindset thing, right? Because 
I remember I was, before I started a business, I was attending some learning annex thing. Have you ever heard of this learning annex? No. Anyway, it's these these seminar things where you, multiple speakers will come. Ultimately, they're just sign, trying to upsell you to you know $1,000 courses and whatnot. But anyway, I was basically like going to the buffet of different styles of businesses. I was looking at real estate investing, stock market investing, trying to figure out how I was going to make money because I knew I didn't want to do consulting. The thing is, you know, I was taking a uh, course on equity structuring, like, you know, what types of businesses to use, different entities for whatever. And there was a stat that the, the lawyer who was teaching that course relayed, which was the top three ways that people th- think they're going to earn money in this country. And it's not necessarily in this order, but it's like winning a lawsuit, inheriting money from a, a relative, or winning the lottery. All of which have nothing to do with self-effort, applying oneself consistently over time. You know, and so that is a real problem like that. If you're in that mindset, what I mean, can there even be anything done about that? Certainly, it's not going to be to start a business. It's be like having a baby and, and thinking that it's going to cook you dinner like in a week or something, you know. Exactly. And again, it translates too directly to not name it. It's the exact same thing in how people relate to their internal relationship. You know, a lot of people who have you know, a somewhat like boring, lackluster, unfulfilling life want to find a partner to almost like jumpstart the dead battery of right. their lives. <laughs> to like, and to also be in that kind of childhood regressed state of, well, when I was a baby, when I was a toddler, I got to you know, do nothing, say nothing, ask for nothing, and my needs were met effortlessly just right away. <laughs> and that's what people want. People yeah. want to get into you business or into a relationship so that their needs are met. And it's, it's that critical counterintuitive of guess what? The exact opposite works. You know, if there's any person who's made it this far into this episode and they're hearing this and there's even 1% of their brain that's like, yeah, but it's easier for you to say no starving artist thing because like you're at this stage. I wish you could live in my brain for a day to really get how useless I am at almost everything except for things that I found fun and just did those things over and over and then built people around me to make up for my, for my failings, for my flaws, for my laziness and really just like made a thing work in spite of those, you know, silos of lack. And I still have a ton of fun. You know, I've gotten tens of billions of readers. I've made multiple seven figures in revenue and the whole thing has just been like an eight-year playtime experiment, and I'm still flying by the seat of my pants. And I deeply believe that if I could figure that out, and I'm still you know, happily ignorant about most of the moving parts of my business, anyone can make a thing work. Yes. If somebody hung out in your brain and then they hung out in mine, they would have a similar experience. <laughs> because it's like, I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And there are the ups and downs. There definitely are the days and the periods of time where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Nothing is working. There's a saying that, you know, probably not going to get it right, but if you want to be somewhere you've never been before, you have to do things that you've never done kind of thing. Yeah. What the experience of living a way that you've never lived before actually feel like? Well, it feels unfamiliar, uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera a lot of the things that are part of our lives now, like our past selves may like explode because it's so much has become habitual, right? And part of ourselves, but because we were consistent over time and had enough commitment to push through the things that were uncomfortable. Absolutely. And again, with business, with relationship, like I see both of these things as, just almost like their own ongoing meditation practice or things that just continually shock you awake because you can't go to sleep for that long because like, oh, here's this new challenge or this new thing to calibrate to that I've never had to consider ever in my life. And so, you know, just like if you've brushed your teeth with your right hand your entire life, then one day it's like, well, you got to use your left hand now. It's like, okay, I will now fix myself to this. Like it's a constant dance and you can either see that as a negative and you can resent it and, you know, dig your heels in and resist life. Or you can go, 
cool. I'm going to grow from this and this is fun. Yeah. And I think, you know, a bold thing to say, but I think living is about being entrepreneurial. And I'm not saying that in the way we're to limit entrepreneurism to making money. It's about recognizing that not everything's served up on a platter. There is effort that's involved in life. There is constant uncertainty. There's an aspect of the culture we've grown up with, the privileges that we've had, where people can naturally slip into a mindset where the expectation, what is it called? Oh, the entitlement mentality is that everything should be given to me and I shouldn't have to work for it, which is super unfulfilling. Totally. It's exactly that. Like imagine signing up for a marathon and you know, you've run 30 feet past the starting line and then <laughs> you know, confetti comes out and they put the medal around your neck and they're like, you did it. And you're like, I didn't do it. Like yeah. there might be some you know, momentary dopamine hit of like, oh, confetti, this is exciting. Right. But it's like, I didn't earn this. And yeah, that laziness and entitlement is just, you know, really when our minds are coddled and, you know, the, the bowling kind of bumper lanes are in your life, you don't really feel like you've won. You don't really get the character development that comes with it. Like we are created by our problems. It's, you know, if you have a lot of problems in your life, that's ideal. That means that your life is up to something. You are doing things. If you want a problem for your life, just, you know, try and do as little as possible and take no responsibility and help no one and just stay home and watch TV. Cool. Enjoy. Right. But even then, people create problems for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Can't escape them. So might as well have higher quality problems. Exactly. Well, I think we're, we're pretty much at the limit here. I'm sure we could go on for a lot longer, but um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. One last question, I think. We've kind of covered it, but I just want to kind of ask the general question. If you would have any advice in general for other entrepreneurs that maybe we haven't talked about, something that comes to mind for you. If you haven't started, start. If you have started, listen to your audience better. Great. Like, you're, just, you're here to serve, so serve. Perfect. There will be bumper stickers of that available somewhere in the world. And uh, your first three video courses will be available on Betamax January, <laughs> January 2021. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, and uh, tell people where they can learn more about you. My website, jordangrayconsulting.com is the main hub. Everything branches off of that. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Jordan. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to my entire conversation with Jordan. I hope you enjoyed this episode and are walking away with some new insights you can implement in your own life and business. I'd like to extend my sincere gratitude to Jordan for coming on the show and sharing so freely from his years of experience. To get links to all the resources we talked about in this episode, you can head on over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 159. There you'll also find the complete show notes and a downloadable transcript of our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more engaging interviews with successful entrepreneurs, experts, and authors, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We have a growing library of engaging episodes with many more to come. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time.